Hello, readers. Barry Sonnenfeld is a filmmaker whose credits include Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Big, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and directing The Addams Family, Addams Family Values, Get Shorty, and the first three Men in Black movies. He's also the author of the book we're talking about today, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. Barry, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Barry. And this book is filled with so many different stories. In an effort to provide some context for people hearing your story for the first time, would you mind uh, letting folks know who Sonny and Kelly Sonnenfeld are? Yes, Sonny is my father. His real name is Nathan J. Sonnenfeld. But since his last name was Sonnenfeld, everyone called him Sonny. Very few people knew him uh, by any other name than Sonny. My mother's maiden name was Kellerman, hence Kelly, Hmm. even though her given name was Irene. So no one knew my parents by any other names than their nicknames, which were Kelly and Sonny. And your parents were two pretty unique characters as well, just to know, much less to be raised by. What were the unique characteristics of your mom, Kelly? Well, you know, both my parents were totally narcissistic and self-involved. In the case of my mother, that was manifested in deep depression. She was desperately smothering as a mother. I was unfortunately an only child, although I begged my parents to tell me I was adopted all my life (laughs) so I could feel no biological connection to them, but they refused to give me that joy of knowing I was adopted. So mom was depressed, very needy, was all about herself, and was all about protecting her one son. So that was Kelly. You know, she spent a great deal of time in a darkened room with a damp towel over her eyes because she was always either having migraine headaches or angina, which we don't even hear about anymore. No one talks about angina, but that was like (laughs) sort of a pre-heart disease kind of. And she was very needy, so she needed her fellow school teachers. She worked in my local elementary school for validation. She was a chapter chairman, which meant she was the head of her school's union, which was called the United Federation of Teachers, or the UFT. Sonny was equally narcissistic, but he was full of optimism. And in fact, he was always starting new companies. They were always going bankrupt. We often didn't have electricity or phone service. Yet he was always an optimist and always felt that things would work out for him. And the way that manifested it for him was he had what I would assume to be dozens of affairs with various women because my mother was not a looker. (laughs) And you provide some pictures throughout the book and give various comps to uh, other well-known people. I think at one point you compare her to Roger Ebert to give people an idea. Roger Ebert and also Vincent Cardinia, who is an Italian (laughs) character actor. I was on David Letterman's show one time, and I mentioned that until he died, my mother could have been Vincent Gardenia's photo double. And of course, you know, they pre-interview on these shows, so Letterman was ready for that, had a photograph of Vincent Gardenia, which got a big laugh, and 
I didn't know Letterman was going to show a photo, but I looked at the photo and I said, well, mom has more facial hair. So I was, <laughs> I was not too kind to my parents. Whatever anger I publicly expressed towards them, they deserve. I don't feel any guilt towards it. Well, and your parents' various delinquencies really forced you to grow up a little bit faster than maybe other kids your age. I mean, growing up, you were making dinner for yourself by your teenage years. Now, occasionally, your mom would make an attempt at cooking, and on those rare attempts that were especially bad, you and your dad had a code word for that particular meal. The word was fisk. What was the inside joke with that? The joke when mom made a horrible meal was dad and I would look at each other and in a quizzical way go, Fisk? Fisk was the name of my father's lieutenant who was eaten by the Japanese in World War II. Dad fought on New Guinea in the Pacific Theater and I guess the Japanese were starving. Just so many coconuts you can eat. And they ended up killing and eating my father's lieutenant. So when the meal was particularly bad, we would look at each other and go, Fisk, and Mom would go, oh, you guys. Here's a funny story about Sonny. My dad, and he never really was able to tell me one version of the story, but, and this is not in the book, so this is an exclusive for you. My father received a silver star, which is literally second only to the Congressional Medal of Honor. So it was a very big deal, and on my 50th birthday, my father gave me his silver star. Wow. And I thought that was a lovely gesture. And about, I don't know, four years later, I was visiting my folks, and I saw on his desk was this official box from the military, and it had a silver star in it. And I said, hey, Dad, I thought you gave me your silver star. And he said, you know, I did. But then I figured I'll just write to the military and tell them I lost it (laughs) and see if they'll send me another one. So he got another one. I said, you know, Dad, the whole emotional gestalt of giving your son your silver star. Some of that emotion is removed if you then just call the military and get another one. And he said, well, I never thought about it that way. And then when he died, people uh, looked through his safe to see what he had left me. And he had left me two additional silver stars. (laughs) So he called the military a second time just in case he actually lost the one he claimed he lost. So I now, in my safe, own three silver stars. Very heroic of your dad. Very heroic. You also write about your greatest personal sports achievements. One was when you were just a boy who beat a kid who was much older, bigger, and more skilled than you in basketball, 11 to nothing, that allowed your friends to stay on a public court that you were playing on. What's the other sports feat that you're most proud of, Barry, and who is the toughest foe you faced at that one? For some reason, I am a great leg wrestler. Most people don't even know what that is, but it's sort of like thumb wrestling or arm wrestling, but it's with your legs. You lay on the ground, your opponent lays on the ground. My head is where their feet is, their head is where my feet are, and you lift your leg up three times, and then 
the two legs engage, and I try to flip my opponent, and he tries to flip me. I've never lost, and I've played and beaten Will Smith, <laughs> Usher. Recently, in the last two weeks, I've beaten both Gelman and Ryan Seacrest <laughs> on uh, Kelly Ripa's show. I've beaten Neil Patrick Harris, Patrick Warburton. These are big, manly, muscular men who actually go to, like, gyms and stuff. And, you know, tennis pros and contractors and soccer players. But the highlight of my life was beating Kelly Ripa. Kelly is a neighbor of mine in Telluride, and she actually grew up leg wrestling, so knew how to leg wrestle, knew she's never been defeated, and also is way more competitive <laughs> than I am. And I beat her, and she said, I want to go again, which I never do, but I agreed I'd go again. I beat her a second time. Her husband, Mark Consuelos, who also is nothing but muscle, said, babe, I can do it. I can beat him. And then, of course, I beat Mark Consuelos. And everyone thinks I have a trick. The truth is, the reason I win is because everyone I've ever played actually is in good shape. <laughs> they're muscular. They work out. They're limber. My secret is because I am nothing but a large body filled with anxiety and stress. Is I'm totally not limber. I have no flexibility. And my leg, from hamstring to calf to toes, is just a solid rebar of pain. So my secret is that I have no flexibility. So I just basically have this rod of sciatic pain attacking my well-endowed, well-worked-out, well-limber enemy. So my secret is just the more anxiety you have, the better leg wrestler you'll be. But I guess that's my trick. That's outstanding. And one more thing from your childhood that's obviously not as amusing, but something that I feel is worth us talking about because we are trying to give people a nice look into the book that you wrote. And while it is very funny in parts, it's also just straight up heartfelt and not as funny in other parts. Your mom's cousin lived with you and your parents for several years during your childhood. His name was Mike. And he was a pedophile. His nickname was CM the CM or Cousin Mike the Child Molester. His victims included you and one of your best friends in the building, Raul. Some 50 years later, you read a piece Raul wrote about the molestation and even met with Raul face to face for the first time in a half century at a French cafe to discuss. And then you confronted your 94 year old dad about why he and your mom enabled this monster to prey on you and the other children in the area. How did that conversation go with your dad? I am an open book. I wear all my stories and emotions on my sleeve. And one of the things that I'm proud of about the book is I'm sort of guileless. I'll tell really funny stories. I'll tell uncomfortable stories. I'll tell really sad stories. But here I am talking to you, so it all worked out well. But <laughs> yes, my parents let Cousin Mike, the child molester, live on our sofa for several years when he was out of work and it really affected several of my cousins my neighbor in the building because mike had molested all of those kids and me 
I seem to have, for the most part, gotten over it or dealt with it. But a lot of these other kids, it affects their lives forever. And when I met Raul and heard how it affected his life, I decided to go and confront my father. And I said to my father, who was 94 at the time, but still full of everything that's funny, he still was writing letters to CEOs about ideas he had that could change General Motors or CN Railroad or whatever it was. And I said, Dad, did you hate Mom so much that you just let Mike live with us so that Mom would have someone to hang out with that wasn't you? And Dad gave me three reasons why they allowed a child molester to live with us. The first was... And this is parroting something my mother had said decades earlier. He said, first of all, don't forget child molestation didn't have the same stigma back then that it has now, mm. which is already making you press the tilt button on your pinball machine. Yeah. Second of all, don't forget your mother was very upset because of all the affairs I was having and I thought having Mike around would cheer her up. Again, no help to me or the other kids that were molested. And then the third thing he said, which really made me press the tilt button and, in fact, say goodbye to him, which was, I never thought Mike molested you. I only thought he was playing with your penis. Oh, good Lord. That's when you literally say, all right, game, set, match, you win. There's nothing more to talk about here. Because up until then, you keep having this hope against hope. Maybe your parents didn't know. It seemed impossible, but maybe your parents didn't know. But now here is my dad literally coming right out and saying he knew everything. And I stood up and I said, okay, dad, just one question. You knew and you were okay with Mike playing with my penis? And Dad said, well, I play with my penis. It feels good. Doesn't it feel good? And I said, well, yeah, but Dad, no stranger is forcing themselves onto your penis. And Dad said, yeah, you know what? I never thought of it that way. And I said, okay, see you, Dad. And I left, went to the... Javits Center, where they have the annual car show, which was a stupid thing to do, but I was meeting a friend of mine there. And the funny thing is, I used to go to the car show every year with my father and CM the CM. So I realized I was so in the wrong place. I broke down in tears. I had terrible sciatica. I had to crawl to the cab station and went home and just wept until my wife came back home and found me under the covers just weeping because suddenly I realized that my parents knew. You know, you kind of thought they did, but this was total outright validation that they knew. And it was devastating. It really was. Yeah, the devastation is understandable. 
So, Barry, we're going to fast forward now just a little bit through high school, through college. You attended NYU. You made an attempt to go someplace else that would get you out of your parents' household. Once again, we're met with the uh, sabotage of your mother to keep you from doing so. She threatened suicide. Eventually, you do make it through college. You graduate. You're working some low-level jobs. And then uh, you end up at NYU, thanks to your mom. She actually suggests you end up at film school there. Some great stories told along the way with those various college experiences for you, but I loved your senior thesis film at NYU. What was it, and what was the first visual effect you ever attempted on screen? I went to undergraduate school in political science with no interest in anything to do with political science, but my mother said if I went to sleepaway school, others call it college, (laughs) she would commit suicide. So I spent three years living at home attending NYU in the Bronx as a political science major. And then when I was a senior, I realized I couldn't do that anymore and decided to apply to a college in Amherst, Massachusetts, called Hampshire, thinking I could go away to school as a senior and my mother would commit suicide. Two birds, one stone, (laughs) win-win. So I go to Hampshire College. My mother, of course, reneges. So she's still alive, but I have a great time at Hampshire. Come back with a degree in political science, which means nothing, and I don't want to be a political scientist. And after a year of doing nothing, I was working at Frenchie's Color Lab, making prints for Marlboro you know, ads and stuff like that. My mother, somehow fearing I was going to move to L.A., which was never in the cards, and I had no interest in the film business or anything, but my mother said, look, you like to write, you like to take still photographs. Movies are just writing with a lot of still photographs combined, which is, by the way, totally not true. (laughs) But for lack of anything better to do, I went to NYU Graduate Film School for three years, thinking at least I don't have to look for a job for three years. My parents said they would pay for graduate school. Of course, they didn't. They're also pathological liars. I forgot to mention that. So I took out a lot of student loans and credit card debt. One of the things everyone at NYU Graduate Film School has to do is they have to make a series of movies, which is great because some film schools you could major in editing or major in cinematography or major in writing. But the program at NYU Graduate Film School made everyone direct, write, shoot, edit their movies so that you really learned how to become a filmmaker. And my thesis film, and this is way before the Dick Donner Superman movie, was I made a movie about Superman and Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen. And one of the very first visual effects I ever did was I have a scene with Lois Lane and Superman at Superman's house and Superman's going to cook Lois a steak. So we cut to a raw steak on a plate with Superman cooking Lois's steak using his x-ray vision. (laughs) Except Lois sounds a lot like my mother, so she's doing a lot of, oh, Superman, everything will be fine, everyone loves you, and Superman's getting more and more angry, and he's staring at the steak with his x-ray vision, which I had doused in Ronson lighter fluid. And I knew that if I threw a match into frame while the camera was rolling, the match would 
go through frames so fast no one would see it, but suddenly the stake, because Superman's getting angrier and angrier, would burst into flames. So I set the stake up in the foreground, Superman's in the background, he's staring at the stake, he's getting angrier and angrier, I throw a match across the frame onto the plate, and the stake, the plate, and my parents' dining room table, because I had <laughs> accidentally put too much Ronson fluid in the plate, and some of it had dripped onto the table. It all explodes in a flaming mess. So I destroyed their very expensive Saarinen table, which I don't even know how they got since we rarely had electricity or phone service, but it was my first visual effect, and I'm still proud of it. You got the shot, though, right? That's the most important thing there. Got the shot, yep. Ruined the table, got the shot. Beautiful. Well, uh, your first paying gig in the business after you uh, got done at NYU Film School was as a cameraman on a nine-day porn shoot. Included bathtubs full of spaghetti, actresses demeaning actors into temporary impotence, Ron Jeremy. But the final day of filming is something out of a nightmare. A funny, funny nightmare. What happened on that final day, Barry? And I'm going to have to imagine this is one of the worst moments of your life. Oh, there have been so many worst moments of my life. It's not fair to pick on any one of them. (laughs) Uh, But... Friends of mine who have read the book said that there should be a warning on this chapter saying, you may not want to read this chapter. But actually, it's the first chapter I ever wrote. I wrote this chapter about a decade before I wrote the book. When I got out of film school, I felt that if I bought a used 16-millimeter camera, I could legitimately call myself a cameraman or a cinematographer without feeling like a dilettante because I owned the camera. And again, we're talking years, decades before video. So if you wanted to shoot low-budget films, you needed a 16-millimeter camera. So a buddy of mine bought a used 16-millimeter camera, and my friend knew a guy who produced porn. So Bob and I were able to both be hired on as cameramen, And we got nine days of camera rental, which was literally two-thirds of the cost of actually buying the camera. So it was a fantastic job, except that I highly recommend anyone who enjoys watching pornos, don't read this chapter because it will make you no longer like pornos. It's truly a horrible experience, shooting pornos. It's very unerotic. Dick, the guy who was the producer-director of these, had no sense of eros. So all of his ideas for the porn scenes were totally disgusting and rarely had anything to do with sexuality. As you said, we shot a scene with someone in 50 pounds of spaghetti and meatballs in a bathtub, which is horrible because the spaghetti gets cold very quickly. There's strands of pasta sticking on to various sexual organs, which looks disgusting. But on the last day, and again, this is a chapter some people may not want to read. The last day, Dick decided to shoot what some people call it double penetration. Some call it a double insertion, where two men have sex with a woman at the same time, one in her vagina, one in her anus. 
Dick, because he was incapable of finding any sort of erotic way to shoot these scenes, decided the way he would shoot it is to take a leaf out of a long dining room table and have this woman sort of sway back so her butt is hanging down in the leaf. So there's a man on top of her on the table and a man underneath her who's in her anus who's basically trying to do chin-ups holding on to the table <laughs> with his legs and arms to keep going in and out of her butt while there's a man on top of her in her vagina. Anyway, it's all going horribly wrong, except the actress isn't actually a porn actress. The porn actress didn't show up. So Dick went to the nearest department store, which was Barney's, two blocks away, and found a woman who was a tailor in Barney's and convinced her that what she really wanted to do was leave Barney's for the day and be the actress in this double insertion. So she had never done anything like this before and is actually having a thrilling time. So she's really enjoying it, which means the men are enjoying it because they're actually seem to be giving this woman genuine pleasure. The man in her vagina has his orgasm very quickly, which is unusual, and we're ready for the orgasm with the man who's having sex with her in her butt. So it's too hard for him to continue to do chin-ups, so we let him get on top of the table. She's on her knees. He's having sex with her in her butt, and he's ready to come. And I've always been a wide-angle lens guy, which means I'm very close to the action. And when the actor, Mark Antony, pulls out of this woman's ass, it is as if her body was a very warm, overshaken bottle of champagne. Mm. And it's as if his penis was the cork holding everything in. So when he pulled out of her ass, a fountain of warm, loamy human excrement shoots out of her ass and covers me and the camera in duty. So I immediately put down the camera and throw up on her, ruining (laughs) things, making things go from bad to worse. I then run out of the loft. We're shooting on the loft on 17th and 5th Avenue. Press the elevator. Luckily, no one's on the elevator. Get to the lobby, run outside, and it is one of those early spring days where the rain is coming down so hard and slanting so steeply that wherever your coat ends, from there to your toes, are just drenched in water, and I am standing there like Willem Dafoe at the end of Platoon on 17th Street and 5th Avenue, my arms outstretched like Jesus Christ, letting the spring rain wash all the human excrement and vomit off of my body. So that was the last day I ever did porn. And it was an overnight shoot, and the next morning was April 1st, which is your birthday. Happy birthday to you. 
Well, thanks. Yes, exactly. So I eventually got back because I am a professional. We continued to shoot a couple more scenes. It was now getting late. It was now getting the next morning. We had to fake the last cum shot just so we could all go home with a combination of sugar and egg white in case you ever need to fake a cum shot. That seems to be the traditional way to do it. And um, at about 5 in the morning as the sun was coming up, we had a job description. There was a woman on the set named Mandy the Paper Towel Girl. And all her job was after a cum shot, to clean up the cum with paper towels. You'd go, Mandy, paper towels. And anyway, so she came out with a uh, Entenmann's cake and one candle, and the last remaining crew members, all three of us, sang happy birthday to me, and that's how I started my 26th birthday, was with an Entenmann's cake sung by Mandy the Paper Towel Girl. <laughs> Incredible. And apparently, and I didn't know this until reading the book, a cardinal sin in porn, maybe the cardinal sin in porn, is to fake that money shot. So uh, you, can def- you can definitely read more uh, on Barry's experience, his limited experience in porn in this book. And I know some people may want to avoid that chapter. For me, Barry, that was one of the more entertaining chapters of this book. Oh, well, thanks. Barry, you met your now wife, Susan Ringo, a.k.a. Sweetie, as a result of getting to work with Elliot Erwitt, a photographer you previously idolized as a teenager. She was his very pregnant wife at the time. Years later, they divorced. Andy demanded that you choose between him or her, seeing as how you were what you called her, quote, best girlfriend at the time and secretly in love with her. You chose her. Good call by you. 30 years later, she's still your best friend and now your lover. Was there anything eventful from the first time you introduced her to Sonny and Kelly Sonnenfeld? Well, you know, my parents were liberal, easygoing, cultural Jews, so I didn't think there would be any problems. But the first time I introduced my parents to Sweetie, they were strangely cold, actually. Susan and I, although living in separate houses then, were best friends while she was going through this divorce from her husband, and I introduced my parents to Sweetie at a luncheonette called Barristers in Southampton. My parents lived in Hampton Bays, which I called Shit Hampton, (laughs) and we lived in separate homes in East Hampton, so Sweetie and I were at lunch, and they were kind of cold to her, and I realized that A, in spite of not really being religious Jews, I think they were surprised that I was interested in a woman who wasn't Jewish. Susan is five years older than me, and Susan already had two children. So I think those three things made them slightly distant. But again, this is before there were ATM machines. So if you needed cash, you either had to ask a friend who had cash to cash a check for you, or go to your bank. My bank was in Manhattan. I lived 100 miles outside of Manhattan in East Hampton. And my father either was bankrupt or had cash. There was nothing in between. And that week, he had cash. So I asked him before we met if he could cash a $300 check for me from my savings account so I wouldn't have to drive into the city. He said, no problem. We're having lunch. My parents and me and sweetie for the first time and i hand dad my check and he reaches into his houndstooth 
sports jacket and pulls out a pre-counted wad of $20 bills. So I take the wad and I start counting the bills. <laughs> and Susan, sweetie, is outraged that I would count the amount of bills my father gave me. And as I continue to count, sweetie says, Barry, you don't need to count. At which point I hold up my left hand <laughs> to stop sweetie from talking. And with my right hand, I make the international give me signal towards my father, <laughs> who smiles, reaches into the other breast pocket of his houndstooth jacket, and pulls out the $20 bill that he had shorted me. So he had it ready in case I counted. But in case I didn't count, he could walk away with 20 bucks that should have been mine. And Sweetie said to the three of us, is this normal? And my father, mother, and myself all at the same time said, oh, absolutely, it's normal. That is great. I also love the backstory of how you met Joel, then Ethan Cohen, and got involved in Blood Simple as their cinematographer and even helped raise $750,000 to shoot the movie here in Austin. One of the lasting images from this cult classic is a shot of Ray burying Julian Marty alive. How did y'all get that shot? Well, that's an interesting shot. You know, uh, to back up just a little bit, I accidentally met Joe Cohen at a party. We didn't know each other at film school or anything. And again, this is way before video. So if you wanted to make low-budget films or shoot documentaries instead of video, everything was shot on 16 millimeter. When I got out of film school, because I wanted to call myself a cameraman, I bought a used 16 millimeter camera. So without feeling like a dilettante, I could say, oh yeah, I'm a cameraman. I own a camera. So when Joel Cohen at this party told me that he and his brother Ethan had written a script for Blood Simple and were going to shoot a trailer as if it was a finished movie and then use that trailer to show to dentist and doctor investment clubs and Minneapolis Hadassah women, you know, that's an organization of Jewish women. So I said to Joel, I own a camera. And he said, all right, you're hired. So I was hired to shoot the trailer. Trailer looked great. We became good friends and spent the next year raising the 750000 with this trailer to make Blood Simple. And then there we were heading to Austin. Joel and Ethan and I just had the best time in Austin. You know, the county line, we would have barbecue Saturday nights and we'd go to 6th Street, listen to music. It was truly an extraordinary event. We stayed in a strange area off of I-35, these housing units that their slogan was for a day or a lifetime, <laughs> meaning you could rent the apartment overnight or live there for 30 years. And to this day, Joe, Ethan, and I, whenever we have a chance, so we put the phrase for a day or a lifetime in our movies. So if you watch Barton Fink, the hotel that Barton Fink stays at, the stationery says, Hotel Earl for a day or a lifetime. If you look at the movie I did with Robin Williams called RV, I wanted them to be driving an incredibly embarrassing RV. So there's an eight-foot photo of me taped to the 
truck, the RV, and it says for a day or a lifetime across the top of the truck. So Austin was an incredibly important thing for us. In fact, our careers were made because of Blood Simple. Joel had spent a year at UT Austin in the graduate film school, so Blood Simple was written around very specific locations that Joel remembered from when he was a student there. One of the scenes was burying Danny Hidea, who played Fran McDormand's husband, alive in a field. And John Getz is burying him alive in the field. And we shot it, and it was good. But we were rushed, and we didn't get enough shots. And Joel and Ethan, when they started to cut the movie, realized they needed more shots. So we went out to my home in East Hampton, dug a big hole, and buried Ethan. (laughs) And Joe wore the actor's clothing, and Ethan wore the actor's clothing, who was being buried, and I lit it in my backyard, just me, no camera crew, no any other kind of crew. And we kept throwing dirt on Ethan and getting more and more footage as Ethan got more and more buried, and soon the ground was just heaving with Ethan, and Joel decided he just wanted a shot just of the ground but no movement, you know, implying that he had died. But Ethan couldn't hear us because he was buried in too much dirt. (laughs) So Joel is yelling, Ethan, stop moving. And Ethan, not hearing us, is still writhing around. So Joel said, okay, cut the camera. And we dug a little hole where we thought Ethan's face was. We just saw Ethan's little glasses and mouth and nose sticking up from us. And Joel said, Ethan, we're just going to cover you up again, but don't move. I just want some footage of the ground without any movement. And Ethan said, hey, Joel. And Joel said, what? And Ethan said, oh, okay, never mind, never mind. And Joel said, what? And Ethan said, well, if all you need is a ground with no movement, do I still have to stay buried underneath here? <laughs> so Joel said, yeah, good point. So we pulled him out of the grave. We filled it up again. And we got this shot without Ethan underground. So that story of burying Ethan in my backyard in East Hampton. And there's dozens of shots in Blood Simple that were shot months later in my backyard. Oh, man, that's wild. Eventually, you guys end up making Raising Arizona. Now, you've had to pass kidney stones more than once in your life. The second time was during filming of Raising Arizona. When did the excruciating pain appear, and what happened from there all the way through the stripper in the pink gorilla suit? Well, it turns out that Blood Simple is a success, a critical success. I am now a a renowned cinematographer. Joel and Ethan get accolades for directing it, and we then go off and do Raising Arizona. Now, I seem to be susceptible to kidney stones. My father had them, too, and they're incredibly excruciating. The first one, which had happened at film school, I ended up having to crawl up the steps of St. Vincent's Hospital nude because I was in too much pain to put clothes on to get my kidney stone dealt with. And then years later, I'm on a set of Raising Arizona, I immediately feel the pain. I know what it is. It's a kidney stone. I go to the hospital, and this time they have to operate. They realize I won't pass it because it's 
stuck against the wall of part of my insides. So they have to do surgery, which means I'm now stuck in the hospital overnight. I have a catheter in my penis because that's where they go up through to get the stone out. And the crew, the grips and the electricians and the camera department, who all love me but think it's really funny that I'm in the hospital with a catheter in my penis, decide to chip in and hire a stripper. The thinking being, how much fun would it be for Barry Sonnenfeld to get an erection <laughs> while having a catheter in his penis? <laughs> so I'm asleep, I'm drugged up, and I wake up and there's a woman at the foot of my bed with a boom box and dressed in a pink gorilla suit. And she says, where can I plug this in? And I say, who are you and why are you here? And then she reads me this card. Dusty, Dennis, Earl, Brian, Kenny, and Dave want me to do this striptease for you. And I have to explain to this woman that the last thing I want to do is to see a woman take off her clothing and get me aroused. And then I have to explain to her why, and she's so stupid. She's as if she is a pink gorilla. I'm able to eventually talk her down and make sure she understands it will be our secret. No one has to know she didn't take her clothes off. She still will get paid. And eventually I got her to leave. But it was touch and go there for a while. You were also the cinematographer on Big the 1988 film starring Tom Hanks and directed by Penny Marshall. I can't even fathom what I read in your book that the original choice for the Hanks character was Robert De Niro. Like, that movie doesn't even make sense if Robert De Niro is in that starring role. But ultimately, you realize, even though you did a great job on the film, that your style did not jive all that well with Penny Marshall's crotchety ways. Why so? Well, you know what? I'm going to back up with you for just one second. I know you think that Robert De Niro would not have been great in Big, but I might disagree with you. Because the one thing about Tom Hanks in that role is you have basically a kid playing a kid. Because Tom is very youthful and exuberant and childlike. It might have been even more moving if Robert De Niro, what you would hardly call childlike, (laughs) was doing stupid things and sticking his tongue out with ice cream and pretending to be a child, I'm not sure it would be better. It definitely would have been different. But in any (laughs) case, when I was hired, it was going to be Robert De Niro. And then after I was hired, the head of the studio, Barry Dillard, decided he didn't want De Niro. He wanted Hanks, and he wanted us to wait for Tom Hanks, which meant... I literally went off, shot Throw Mama from the Train for Danny DeVito, and then came back and shot Big. And everything that I do, and I think it has to do with being an only child, needing everyone to know that I'm in the room, as it were. Everything I do, either as a cinematographer or as a director, there's a real visual style to it. I use the camera as a storytelling device not just as a recording device. I think the camera should move, 
do interesting self-conscious things. You know, in Blood Simp, we literally track down the length of a bar, and halfway down there's a drunk, and the camera booms up over the drunk and then continues on its way. Stuff that very few directors or camera people or storytellers would do. But I'm a big believer that the camera is a character in the movie. Penny, I think, did not want the kind of visual style I brought to that movie and would have been happier if it was shot in a very comedy, straightforward, unstylized, unvisually sophisticated way. But that's not who I am, and I thought I could help elevate her movie by helping her design interesting shots, ways to reveal certain things. In addition, because I went to film school, one of the things you learn at film school is you've got to make decisions, and you've got to make all your decisions before you get on the set because the set is expensive, and pre-production is free. So I made every decision. I designed all the shots for Big way before we started to shoot. But Penny didn't like to make decisions. And I think another issue was that when Penny wouldn't make a decision, I would. And by the way, Penny's a brilliant comedy director. It was her idea to have Tom eat like caviar and hate it at the party and to have those tiny little corns that, you know, like appetizer <laughs> corns, but he eats it as if it's a corn on the cob. <laughs> Brilliant stuff that Penny came up with. But Penny couldn't make decisions. So the night we were going to shoot the scene of Tom Hanks in the limo with Elizabeth Perkins coming out of the party and driving around New York in the car, we had three different camera lighting and grip crews. One rigging a Subaru XT because Penny liked the dashboard. One rigging a Corvette convertible because Penny thought Tom Hanks' character would like a Corvette convertible and one lighting the limousine. And we get to the set and it's six o'clock and we get ready to shoot and we have literally three different cars all rigged by expensive union employees because Penny couldn't make her decision in pre-production or even in production. And the producer, Bobby Greenhut, said, Penny, it's week 10. We've got to shoot this tonight. What's it going to be? And Penny said, what does Barry think? And I said, the limo. And Penny said, okay, the limo, but remember I said it was a bad idea. Hmm. And I said, no, no, Penny, you're the director. What do you want? She said, no, no. You picked the limo, too late, I don't like it, but that's what we're going to do. So that was my relationship with Penny. Penny was able to take none of the blame or responsibility by disagreeing with whatever anyone else decided. But then once the movie came out, she was more than willing to take all the credit, and as she should since she was the director. One of the many great lines that you have in this book, Barry, is that every time you step off of an airplane, you consider it a failed suicide attempt. Failed suicide attempt. What's the closest you ever come to dying on a plane? Well, you know, every time I get on a plane, I view it as a close attempt to at dying on a plane. But I would say the closest was 
1999, I was on a private jet flying to a meeting in Los Angeles. We were going to land at Van Nuys Airport. And as you said, I always knew that I was going to die in a plane crash, and I was not a good flyer. But about 14 minutes out from Van Nuys at 14,000 feet, this plane went out of control. It started to nosedive and shake, and from the cockpit where the pilot, co-pilot, and flight attendant were, their door was closed. I'm hearing claxtons and beeps and recorded voices saying, pull up. So I knew we were going to die. And what was interesting is, and what made me a better flyer is, I assumed that if I knew I was going to die in a plane crash, I would weep uncontrollably, I would relive my life, I would think about all the ways that I could not have been on that plane at that second if I hadn't taken that job or this or that, but none of that happened. Instead, I just put my feet up in front of me, and I tried different line readings of the phrase, and now I die. And I tried it with an emphasis on each syllable. So I'd go, and now I die. And now I die. And now I die. And finally, and now I die. And by the way, all very good choices. And if I was directing that scene, I would have had the actor do exactly what I did, which was put the emphasis on a different syllable to see which gets the biggest laugh at the recruited audience screening, and you go with that one. But I didn't weep. I didn't flail around in sadness. I just went very flat and very calm. We try to land way too far down the runway. We have to make a U-turn going way too fast because we're aiming at a brick wall. And now the way we try to stop, because their emergency reverse thrusters aren't working, is the pilot somehow decides the way to stop is to aim at, hit, and bounce over parked airplanes. Oh, my gosh. So we're now destroying Piper Cubs, Cessnas, various other planes. We go through a fence. We're now in the Van Nuys Airport parking lot. We're destroying cars, and we come to a stop after destroying a Dodge 3500 Dually. And we're lodged against a pine tree, and they don't see that because they don't have the same angle. So pilot, flight attendant, and co-pilot are trying to get out of the plane, but I see that the door's blocked. And I very calmly say, say, are we at all worried about that? The that is all the fluid leaking out of the engine. And the next thing you know, they have run past me. <laughs> opened the back cargo compartment and abandoned me on the plane, and I am alone. I walk to the back, pass the strewn luggage, and look out the cargo door, and I see that my crew is fleeing because they think the plane's going to explode. Van Nuys Fire Department comes. They eventually coax me off the plane, although... My fear of heights is equal to my fear of dying in a plane crash, and I don't want to jump out the back of the plane, so I convinced some fireman to sort of like hug me, and I sort of 
just <laughs> fold into his arms, <laughs> get to the ground, and now we're all fleeing. And I get to the hotel I'm staying at that night, Hotel Bel Air, and there's a large bouquet of flowers from the plane rental company that says, we apologize for your recent tragedy. So maybe I died and don't know it. I don't know. Why was Hurricane Bob in 1991 a major point of pride for you? Well, you know what? My penis's name is Bob. <laughs> so every time I read or heard on the radio or heard on television that Hurricane Bob was cutting a large swath through the Carolinas, I was pretty impressed by myself. <laughs> oh, man. You finally got to make your directorial debut with the Adams Family. Now, it was during the filming of the Adams Family that you had an emergency situation that required you to rush back to Sweden and New York, but you were still on the set trying to film the final piece of a scene where Morticia, played by the lovely Angelica Houston, is causing a classroom full of kids to cry at her version of Hansel and Gretel, which was told from the witch's point of view. But the kids weren't crying correctly. So how did you inspire that proper reaction out of those children? You never can get kids to cry, you know, and it always looks fake. And I needed the kids to be shocked by Morticia reading Hansel and Cradle to these pre-K kids and telling the story from the witch's point of view and how sad it is that they stuck this witch in the other. And then Morticia says, how do you think that would make you feel, children? So I, you know, said, all right, kids, look sad, look shocked looked worried, you know, and they made those faces. And I said, good, got it. And I went to leave because I was racing to get back to New York because my wife was having surgery the next morning and I was going to try to make the red eye. And Scott Rudin, who was a producer, called me over to the monitor and said, you don't have this. you got to make those kids cry. They said, oh, come on, Scott, you can't make four-year-olds cry. And he said, you got to make them cry. And I said, how am I going to do that, Scott? And Scott said, you're the director. It's your problem. Make them cry. And this is maybe the low point of my career in the film business. <laughs> and as you know from reading the book, I've had some real low points in my life in the film business. But I went to the two camera operators and I said, all right, roll camera. As soon as the kids start to cry, stay on each kid crying and then just pan to a different kid so I have enough footage of each kid crying. And the camera operator said, you're going to make those kids cry? And I said, just roll the camera. And I went up to the kids, and they were all blonde and cute. They were as opposite as Morticia. That was the idea. And there was one kid with curly blonde hair who was really sort of a smart, Alec and really knew everything. And I said to all the kids, all right, kids, you're all done. You did great. No problems. You're totally done. The only thing we still have to do is give each one of you a measles shot. <laughs> I hated myself already. And the smart-ass kid with the curly hair said, he's only kidding. And I said, no, actually, didn't your parents tell you? Everyone who works on a movie has to get a measles shot. It's, it's like the law. You just, 
it's not a big deal. It won't hurt that much. And that kid started to cry. <laughs> and since he was their de facto leader, when he cried, they all burst into tears. So literally, I've got this amazing sequence where all the kids are crying. I'm hating myself. And then I look out of the corner of my eyes. And the father of one of the kids, probably the smart-ass kid, is barreling toward me, screaming, I'm going to effing kill you. Oh, gosh. And by the way, he's right. I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm running down the hallway. I see that my station wagon with the Teamster, who's waiting to drive me to the airport, is standing there smoking a cigarette. I dive into the rear seat. He slams the door, gets in the driver's seat, and as we're pulling away, the dad is banging on the back windshield of the station wagon, screaming, come back here, you little shit. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> now, I have to admit that you also directed one of my all-time favorite flicks from the 1990s, Get Shorty. It is just one of those films that just epitomizes cool in my mind, still all these years later. In casting the main character, Chili Palmer, you spoke with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. Why was Dustin Hoffman so interested in the role, and what transpired between you and Warren Beatty? Weirdly, the guy who I wanted to play the lead role, who Travolta eventually played, was actually Danny DeVito, because... To me, Danny is the most self-confident person I've ever met. I worked with him on Throw Mama from the Train. And for me, the lead role is all about self-confidence. But Danny agreed to produce it and agreed to play that role. But over time, it took so long to make that Danny had an opportunity to direct Matilda, which was a movie he was trying to do for many years. So he agreed to take a smaller role, which is actually the role of Shorty, which makes a lot more sense for Danny to play the role of Shorty than for him to actually have played the role of Chili. Dustin Hoffman claimed he was interested. I flew out to L.A. risking my life on an airplane, <laughs> met Hoffman, and Hoffman said, look, just curious, am I the Shorty of Get Shorty? Because Elmore Leonard had written get shorty based on an experience working with Dustin Hoffman on a movie called El Bravo, which never got made, but I guess was hard for Elmore to work with Dustin. And I said, you know what, Dustin, I don't know. Elmore had never uh, told me if it's based on you or not. And Hoffman said, well, that's really all I wanted to know. I don't want to really be in your movie. And I said, okay, thanks. See ya. And then risk my life flying back to New York. Cut to two weeks later. Now Warren Beatty wants to do it. And Danny DeVito is telling me, get on a plane, go meet Warren. He says he wants to do it. And I said, he's not going to want to do it. I'm going to have to risk my life on two more airplanes to get there and back. Don't make me do it. Danny makes me do it. I go to L.A., and I have to spend five days at the Bel Air Hotel where Warren Beatty was staying and kept not having the meeting. He refused to answer the call. I would leave him messages. 
his agent would call me and say, oh, Warren's been getting your messages. He'll meet with you before Sunday. And I would say, well, when? Why don't we pick a time right now? Warren doesn't work that way. Don't worry about it. And finally, Saturday night, I called Warren and once again left yet another message. And we're staying at the same hotel saying, look, I'm leaving tomorrow. They're running out of New York strips. So I've got to get out of here before they run out of steaks because I ate every meal in my hotel room expecting him to call me. And as soon as I said I was leaving, he called me and said, all right, I'll meet you the next morning. We met, and he said how much he loved the script and wanted to do it, which I was shocked at. And then he said, I only have one question, and if you can answer the question, I'm in. And I said, what's the question? And he said, I look like Warren Beatty. I said, yes, you do. And he said, but at the start of this movie, I'm just a numbers runner. I'm not like the head of the mob. I'm just a numbers runner. How could a guy who looks like Warren Beatty not be further up the mob chain? Why am I only a numbers runner? And I explained to him that our plumber in East Hampton was gorgeous, but he was just a plumber. And sometimes really good-looking guys just don't run everything. <laughs> and he said, yeah, no, no, I totally get that. But I look like Warren Beatty. Oh, my gosh. And I said, you know what? You're right. You look too good to play this role. Thanks for meeting me. And I got on the next plane and flew back to East Hampton and eventually... We were able to get John Travolta, who was just fantastic in the role. But so were Gene Hackman and Danny DeVito and Dennis Farina and Rene Russo. It was just a perfect cast. Well, I have to thank you for Gene Hackman. I think you opened up his world to that sort of comedy because my all-time favorite movie is Royal Tenenbaums, which, look, that's a superstar cast from top to bottom, but it starts with the namesake of the movie played by Gene Hackman. Was it difficult to sell him on this idea of starring in something that was a little bit lighter versus what people have become accustomed to with Gene Hackman? Yeah, you know, it's funny because he also did Birdcage, where he was incredibly funny, directed by Mike Nichols after he did Get Shorty. We had a table read about two years before we made the movie because it took us so many years to make the movie, we wanted to see if maybe we were wrong. So we invited one Sunday a lot of actors to just read the script. Danny played the Chili Palmer role. Gene Hackman played his role. Dennis Freener played his role. Leslie Ann Warren played the role Rene Russo got. Samuel L. Jackson played the role that we hired Delray Lindo for. But at the end of the reading, I remember Sweetie coming up to me with tears in her eyes saying, you know what, no matter what, if you have Dennis Farina and you have Gene Hackman in those roles, it's a home run. And I went to Gene and I said, listen, if we ever get this money to make this movie, I'd love for you to play Harry Zim, which is the role he had read for. You were so funny. And he said, I don't know what the F you're talking about. I'm not a comedian. And I said, that's what makes you so funny. <laughs> you don't want a comedian saying all those dumb, funny things. You want a great actor 
not knowing what they're saying is funny, you're perfect. And he said, I don't have an effing clue what you're talking about. It makes no sense to me. And I said, that's okay, Gene. You don't need to know. <laughs> and then when we got the money from MGM, we got Dennis Farina, we got Gene Hackman, and they're just both so hilarious while never trying to be funny. Crazy. And why do you have Quentin Tarantino to thank for ultimately landing John Travolta in that role of Chili Palmer? Quentin had just finished Pulp Fiction with John, and John totally trusted Quentin because Quentin was about to bring back his career. And one of the principals of Danny DeVito's company called Jersey Films was a woman named Stacy Sher, who dated Quentin. And Stacy called Quentin and said, listen, John doesn't want to do Get Shorty. Barry and Danny have had two meetings with him, and he's turned it down twice. Can you convince John? And John totally trusted Quentin to do the movie, and Quentin called John, God love him, and said, John, this is not the role you pass on. And John said, I don't get it. I don't get the tone. Quentin said, you don't have to. Barry gets it. Do this movie, John. And John was convinced by Quentin Tarantino and a lot of money from MGM, by the way, to be Chili Palmer. And he's just fantastic in it. No one has a better walk in every movie than Travolta. You look at any of his movies and he defines his character by the way he walks. He walks totally different in Pulp Fiction. He walks totally different in Get Shorty and totally different in Saturday Night Fever. He's a genius with a walk. I'm thinking about that right now. I feel like it has to do with how he manipulates his shoulders when he's walking, because I can picture him walking in all three of those movies, and you're right, it's different in each one. Yeah, I think it's shoulders, and I think it's how and posture, which is part of that. Yeah. Hmm. So before you were finally able to get get Shorty made, there was some contentiousness over $250,000. How was that resolved? MGM wanted to make the movie for $30 million, and our very tight budget was $30 million and 250000 And Danny and the line producer I work with, Graham, and myself went into... MGM, because we really needed a green light. We really needed them to say, yes, start production. But there was this contention over 250000 And MGM's trying to nickel and dime us to find 250000 and it never works that way. You know, they were saying, well, you have $4,000 in for parking downtown. Do you really need that much? And Graham would say, yes, it's a union thing, and they would say, couldn't it be 2500 And Graham would say, no, it's four grand. We already checked. You know, stuff that even if we could lose that stuff, it would be a hundred different things, you know? Mm-hmm. And finally, I said, look, there's an easy way to lose this $250,000. There's this one great scene where John Travolta's character visits Gene Hackman's character on the set of one of Gene Hackman's 10-day horror movies. Gene Hackman is kind of playing Roger Corman in the movie. Mm. And I said, and we've got Ben Stiller playing the young new director. And I said, it's a great scene, but it takes place over two nights. 
each night is 125,000. If we lose the scene, we've lost 250,000. We're on schedule. We're on budget. You can say yes right now. And all we do is we just don't have that scene. I said, it's a great scene, but it doesn't move the story forward. You can cut the scene out, and it doesn't change the plot. Let's just get rid of it. And Mike Marcus, the head of MGM, said, you can't lose that scene. I love it. It's my favorite scene. <laughs> I said, it's a great scene, but we got to lose 250, and this is the way to do it. And he said, you are not losing that scene. And I said, we are losing that scene. And Mike said, what would it cost if I want that scene? And I said, 250000 And he said, you got it. <laughs> so I said, okay, just to confirm, the scene is in, and our budget now is $30,250,000. And he said, that's what I just said, asshole. I said, okay, just checking. So, and I learned that from Scott Rudin on Adam's family, that if you're willing to give up stuff, more often than not, the studio will give you what you want. You just have to be willing to get rid of it. And I was willing to get rid of that scene. We shot the scene, and it's not in the movie because it didn't move the story forward. Oh, wow. So it ended up not mattering. That's crazy. But uh, also brilliant. Yeah, if you rent the DVD, it's in the uh, extras. I don't believe in having a theatrical version and a special edition version, but you can find the scene. It's not in the movie, but I put it in at the end of the DVD just to see what was taken out. It's a great scene. It just didn't matter if it were in the movie or not. Why did Will Smith have to console you on the set of Wild Wild West, and what did that scene look like? So on Wild Wild West, we were shooting one night in an area called Lake Piru, which is sort of northeast of L.A. The thing that people don't realize about L.A. is you're in the desert, and it's always cold at night. It could be 80 in New York at midnight, but in L.A. it will be 52. So... Earlier that day, I was a one-night shoot at Lake Piru. My wife had been dizzy for a couple of days, and because I'm neurotic, I convinced her she needed to see our doctor, our L.A. doctor. She was begging me not to make her go. She was just a little dizzy occasionally. I said, no one's just a little dizzy occasionally. Go to the doctor. She goes to the doctor. The doctor says, there's nothing wrong with you. But just to make sure, tomorrow let's come in and do a brain scan. But there's nothing wrong with you. My wife made the mistake of telling me that. Now, of course, the doctor, I'm sure, is getting a kickback from the brain scan company or whatever. (laughs) But in any case, I now leave for work to do this all-night shoot in Lake Piru with Will Smith and 400 Southern reenactors from the Civil War. And... I'm now convinced the only reason Sweetie needs a brain scan is because she has brain cancer, she's got a brain tumor, and she's going to die. The other thing you should know about me is when I get hungry, I get emotional. (laughs) And because it was a night shoot, lunch is served around midnight. So we're up there in Lake Piru. It's dark. It's cold. The lighting is taking forever. The mechanical effects aren't working. And it's almost lunchtime, and things are finally ready, and Will Smith comes to the set. And for no apparent reason, 
I start to cry. I start to weep. And Will says, what's wrong, Baz? He used to call me Baz. I said, sweetie's dying. What do you mean she's dying? She has a brain tumor and she's dying. Now, Will, who loves me and loves sweetie, starts to cry and openly weep and hug me. And we're both howling while 400 Civil War reenactors from the South are watching a black man and a Jewish man hugging and weeping uncontrollably. <laughs> Their mouths are agape. They're just staring there in disbelief. The producer sees that his director and his star are just hugging and weeping and howling. Gets one of those John Deere gators, you know, little ATV with a bed on it, puts us both on the bed and since it's almost lunchtime, announces to everyone, we're going to break for lunch. And we get wheeled past 400 reenactors, and we go up to base camp where all the, our campers are. And Will is saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so upset for you. Poor sweetie, if anything were ever to happen to Jada. But I'm done, and I realize I'm hungry. So I say to Will, I might just be hungry. Do you want something to eat? And he goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, sometimes I get real emotional when I get hungry, but I'm going to go to the caterer. You want to come? He goes, how can you eat? Sweetie is dying. I said, well, she might not be dying. What do you mean she might not be dying? You said she had a brain tumor. I said, well, at the moment she might have a brain tumor. We don't know. She's just been dizzy, but the doctor says it's probably nothing. And Will looked at me like, you made me cry in front of all those guys. <laughs> Because you're hungry. And the, the punchline to the story is he goes to his camper. I get some food. I go to my camper. I share my camper with my good friend who is the producer, and he's turned purple and is laying on the floor because he has a piece of cauliflower stuck in his throat, and he can't breathe. Now, I don't know Heimlich maneuver, but Will is the biggest guy I know, so I run to Will's camper, and I go, Will, Graham is dying. You have to come to my camper. <laughs> Will says, I'm not falling for that, Baz. No, 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 he's really dying. Will says, he better be dying. And Will comes back with me to the camper where Graham is barely breathing. He's the color of the Colorado sky. And I said, Will, do you know Heimlich, the Heimlich maneuver? And Will didn't. Do you know CPR? Will didn't. So what Will did is picked up Graham by his ankles like he's a newborn baby, lifted Graham high up in the air, and then like a pendulum, started to swing Graham's back up against the camper's refrigerator. So Graham is upside down with his face barely clearing the floor, as Will, who's holding Graham up, which Graham weighs 200 pounds, and is swinging Graham into the refrigerator upside down, and on the fifth swing... Graham hits the back of the refrigerator so hard that the cauliflower rosette pops out of his mouth like it's a bad Warner Brothers cartoon. <laughs> Graham can now breathe. Will puts Graham down on the ground and walks out. And as he leaves, he mumbles under his breath, white folk. <laughs> Barry, speaking of Will, what hygienic product did you turn him on to and how did you prank Will and his family using said hygienic product? Years ago, my wife turned me on to Tux medicated comfort pads. They're moistened ass wipes. 
So I love these tucks, and I use them all the time. And at some point, I introduced them to Will, and Will fell in love with tucks. And in fact, we were making a speech in front of 4,000 movie exhibitors in Las Vegas when Will went on about how it changed his life by introducing him to Tuck's medicated comfort pads. They're not just for hemorrhoids. They're for cleanliness. <laughs> Cut to, years later, Will and I are working on Men in Black 3, and Will lives fairly far outside of L.A. He's about an hour and a half outside of L.A., and I was spending a few days at his house working on Men in Black 3, working on the script, and... At some point, I was leaving his house to go back to L.A. for some more meetings, and then I was going to come back to his house and spend a few more days there. And as I was leaving, I stopped in the powder room because it's a long drive back to L.A., and I saw that Will had had a container of tux that was in a macrame design coverette. So I opened up the bottle of tux, and took out the top pad and wrote, Dear Will, I'm your biggest fan. And then closed it. It's, by the way, what Kathy Bates was always saying to Jimmy Kahn in Misery. I was the cinematographer on Misery, mm -hmm. and she was always saying, I'm your biggest fan. So I didn't sign it. I just wrote, Dear Will, I'm your biggest fan. Put it back in the tux container, closed it up. Four days later, I'm back in Will's house, Will says, hey, Baz, he called me Baz, just wait out here. I'm having a meeting with the head of my security in the dining room, just wait outside. So I'm overhearing the discussion, and they're talking about how upset Jada is, and they're wondering if they should bring the FBI in to do research. And it dawned on me what they were talking about. So I go... Will, I think I can help. And Will yells, Baz, you can't help. Stay out of this. And they go, no, Will, I think I can really help. And Will says, Baz, Jade is very upset. Please just... And I said, does it have anything to do with someone writing something on a toxic medicated comfort pad? <laughs> and Will looks at me and he goes, I should have known better. And that was it. It was all because I wrote that note on his pad of tux. The subtitle of your book refers to you as neurotic, Barry. You admit to being so neurotic that you once got into a yelling match with Larry David in public over which of you was more neurotic. How'd that go down? Well, I won. I'm very proud to say. I was, uh, <laughs> I was at a power breakfast room in Manhattan at the Lowe's Regency Hotel. I was having a meeting with a guy. I was pitching him an idea for an animated movie. And earlier in my life, both Larry David and I have worked with Cheryl Hines, and we each wanted to know who was more neurotic. And Cheryl refused to say because she knew whoever was declared the most neurotic, the second place person would be insulted. <laughs> so Cheryl one time was on the Late Show with David Letterman, and she actually announced to Letterman that I was the most neurotic person she had ever met. A few weeks later, I'm in this power breakfast room, and I'm having my breakfast, and from across the room, I didn't even see he was in the room. I hear Larry David's voice screaming, Sonnenfeld, 
You claim you're more neurotic than me, but you have yolks with your eggs. You put butter on your bread, and you're eating bacon. And I yell out across the room, extra crispy. His point being no neurotic Jew would have anything other than egg whites, toast with no butter, and wouldn't go near any sort of fatty food like pork. So I was very proud of that moment. You and I are both big fans of extra crispy bacon. Does it bother you like it does me when servers and or restaurants don't respect the extra crispy request enough to actually make it happen? The problem always is in the communication between the waiter and the kitchen, and it infuriates me. Just like when I order my martini, I don't order a martini. I say I would like brutally shaken vodka in a martini glass. That's it. And then they'll go, I get it, extra dry. And I go, no, 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 not extra dry. That implies some vermouth. Don't say the word martini. Don't say the word extra dry. Just say brutally shaken vodka. In the same way I say brutally shaken, because everyone remembers that because they haven't heard that before, I say burnt bacon. Because extra crispy, they feel that they can get away with certain layers within that phrase. You know, your extra crispy might be my crispy. But if you say burnt They'll burn the bacon. So that's I've now gone to burn my bacon instead of extra crispy. And I've increased my odds from 80 to 90% of being happy. So that's my little gift to you today. Well, I appreciate that. And let's be honest, burnt bacon is still way better than flimsy bacon. Oh, God, yes, absolutely. But listen, I have a bigger problem. You call room service, and the first thing they say to you is, they want to pronounce your name. Instead of saying, hello, how can I help you? They'll say, hello, mister, and then they'll panic because it's a lot of letters. And they know it's not Seinfeld, but it's so easy to just say, hello, Mr. Seinfeld. So I get a lot of summer fields, a lot of several syllables that just peter out. I just interrupt them. I go, yes, breakfast for one. And then they'll say to me, how many will be dining with us today? And then you go, one. Anyway, that's besides the point. (laughs) (laughs) He is Barry Sonnenfeld, a filmmaker whose credits include Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Big Misery, Adam's Family Values, the Adam's Family original story, Get Shorty, the Men in Black movies, and so much else. He's also the author of the book we've been talking about today, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. Barry, thank you so much for the time today, and also thank you for this book. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to get back to Austin and the county line. You let me know when you do. I'll be happy to treat you to a meal. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Take care.